many miracles that have happened to Jewish people throughout our life. Kermit's coming up, it's a great story. Hanukkah, we have all these miracles, all these you know, holidays that we celebrate, and they try to destroy us, and you know, everything's great, you know, Mary went to school, there are all these holidays, all these miracles that happen to Jewish people. What is the most famous miracle of all Jewish people? The most famous miracle of all Jewish people is the miracle of our survival. The fact that we are still here today, right? Mark Twain, he said it the best. He said, you know, what is the secret to our immortality? If you look through history, if you look through world history, it's actually Jewish history, okay? You start with Mesopotamia, that's where Abraham lived. Then you go down to Egypt, and that's where the Jewish people ended up because there was a hunger, right? And then they move up, and then they start to develop other areas, and the next big culture was Greek, right, the story of Hanukkah, oh, sorry, Persia, which is now Iran, and that's the story of Perm, then they go to Greece, then they go to Rome. If you follow the golden eras of the world, it's actually the history of the Jewish people. So the fact that we've survived till today, we're teeny, we're being crushed, every single nation's got up and tried to destroy us, what is the secret to the Jewish survival, and how are we still here today? That is the greatest miracle of all. <coughs> The third question is something that actually affects our uh, 21st century very much, and this is the topic of depression. Um, I don't like to bring it up because, like, you know, it's so taboo, like, everybody has a therapist, and that's cool, and it's great if you're in New York and you can afford a therapist, go for it. It's amazing. They are quite pricey. I happen to be school psychologist on the side. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I'm not, I don't want to see any of you. But I'm saying therapy is great. Therapy is great. But it is unfortunate that there are a lot of people going through depressive times. And that's because we have such highs now that we're expected to reach such great highs that we fall so low. They're like, you're expected to go to work and make the best job and get promotions and follow this and, this and find the most gorgeous guy and have the most gorgeous wedding and go on the most amazing honeymoon, which I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm calling her out. She went on the most beautiful honeymoon. Go stalk her Facebook, the beautiful pictures. Um, but the idea is that what is this idea with depression? So what is this concept of depression? And you go to a therapist in the first session, they'll probably say, oh, it's just all in your head. It's just in your head. Actually, when I say it's just in my head, that's actually the worst place that it could be. Like I'd rather be in my foot and I'll go to physical therapy than actually be in my head and I have to sit through psychotherapy, right? <laughs> so the idea is, what is what's up with depression and how do we cure it and how do we, how do we maintain those highs and extreme lows? And the last question is um, something that many of you have had where you've been to a party and there was alcoholic drinks and somebody perhaps fell, right? Now, at a party where there's people are drinking and you fall down a flight of steps, what do you do? The first thing you do is you like, everyone starts laughing, maybe somebody else spills their drink, what's going on here? Now, if this was a sober party, okay, and somebody falls down a flight of steps, the first thing you'd be doing is like calling 911. Like, she needs an ambulance, she's not feeling well, she's hurt, I don't know what's going on, is she okay, lift her fed up, put some ice on it. But if this is a party where people are drinking and people are intoxicated, then it's like, Hmm, not so bad, right? You're on the floor, you pick them up, you brush your feet, you brush yourself off, you sit back down the chair, maybe have another drink, right? So what is it that when you're at a party, do you fall down at a steps and you typically will call, call an ambulance as opposed to somebody who has a little alcohol in their system, they're a little bit more loose? Four questions don't sound related at all, it's okay. Um, let's try to understand it like this. When Hashem first created the world, he first created the existence of this world, the matter, the particles. He created vast, beautiful worlds in six days. He created light, the sun, the moon, the stars, 
the animals, the trees, the grass, and then he created the life of this world, okay? The life force of this world. Now, for obviously for this class, it would sound beautiful. He first created the body of this world, and then he created the soul of this world. Now, let's try to understand. Everything in this world has exists, ha, um, exists and also lives. So let's just try to give some examples. Existence. A mountain exists. Okay, it takes up, it has a tremendous existence, mountain ranges, right? Tremendous, what is their life? What is their life force? Their life force is their purpose. So what is their purpose? They serve a tremendous existence. They have a vast, huge existence. What is their life force? What could be a purpose of a mountain range? Beauty. Beauty, yes. A home for animals. Home for animals, somebody just said something else. No, shelter, wind block, shelter, right? It can serve to save you from an enemy, hide behind, right? We always read, like, you know, back in the days, like we hear stories from like David Hamel, he used to hide within the mountains from his enemy, right? You go to Engedi, anybody been in Israel? And they talk about in Engedi how all the animals were, all the ibexes like hidden there and King David would hide in that mountain range, right? It can serve to hide people. It has an existence. Maybe its existence is minimal compared to, let's say, fire or water, but it has its, it has its life force. Water, right? Water has a tremendous existence. 75% of this world is water. Uh, something like that. I don't know. I can say any number, and you guys are like, cool. It's like when you see these, like, um, these like memes or like quotes of like people and like they can write anything and anybody believes it. Like like the Donald Trump one, like, oh, in 1990, did anybody see that one? The People magazine, 1998. Like the first thing I did was like, is this real? And that's obviously it's not, but you could say any percentage and you'd be like, oh, that sounds smart, that sounds right. Okay, so 75% of the world is water, maybe it's 80% of the world is water. What is its purpose? What's its life? What's the life of water? Fluidity. What? Change, fluidity. Change, fluidity. Permanence, sustainability. sustainability, there we go, right? Fire also exists, okay? It takes up a lot of space. What's its purpose? Warmth, right? Destruction, destruction is actually a life, like it is purpose, it can destroy, right? So everything that we have exists, but yet also lives. Now we too, as human beings, we exist, okay? We actually take up space. But we also have a purpose. We also have the life force within us, which is our soul. Now get this. The more we exist, the less space we have for our life. The more we live, the less we care about our existence. Now let me give you an example. Right now, for my existence to be amazing, if you guys were not here, my existence would be amazing. I would make this into a walk-in closet, okay? I would. I'd put my, I'd make that into my closet for like my furs, okay? Then I would put my shoes over there on this side. Then I would put my spring in this. And then I can have a runway in my closet, which I always wanted, because then I could have a mirror. I, look, the mirrors are right here. This would be the most amazing, well, I don't know anybody in New York City who has this as a walk-in closet, but outside of New York, this would be an amazing walk. So you guys are cramping my existence. I want this room. I need this. But imagine I'm standing here talking to myself. I mean, I'd be like a loser, right? Like I would be talking to myself. So even though you're cramping my existence, you are amazing for my life force because my life wants this. I want to be talking to people, okay? Think about in a relationship, in a marriage, of all the guys I've ever dated, which guy am I going to choose to 
cramp my existence, to be in my literal space. Remember, existence means space, matter. He's in my space. He leaves his underwear. He leaves his socks. He makes a mess. It's cramping my existence. I want a bigger closet. I don't want you to make a mess in the kitchen. Uh, 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 uh. But then again, for my life, that's everything. My life force wants it. So here's the thing, the more you cramp my existence, the more you put pressure on my existence, make my existence smaller, the more I actually live. And the ultimate example of this is a woman during pregnancy. What happens? She can't eat when she wants, she can't drink when she wants, she can't smoke what she wants, when she wants, maybe she shouldn't be doing any of that, but the idea is that all of a sudden, there is something that's actually taking up her existence, okay? God willing, one day you will all know what amazing miracle of Tums are. Tums are amazing, okay? <laughs> Especially for a pregnant woman because there's no space. The food is not going down. It's in my space. It's in my existence. But what is happening? What's in that woman's stomach? Life. Life itself is growing. So the more you put pressure on your existence, the more you actually live. And this is a constant balance. You can't be one. You can't just be all existence, because then you'll be Kim Kardashian. And you can't just be all life. I'm sorry. I, I mean, it's great like, to watch your shows, and like, it just keeps me on my toes. But that reminds me of what it would be just to exist. And then there's life. And that life can't just be without a body, because that would just be free-floating. And that would be like, uh, what's that book, Many Lives and Many Masters? That would just be all soul. We need to figure out a way to put our life and our existence together. So let's try to answer the questions. With this knowledge, let's try to answer our questions. Question number one, what is up with the midlife crisis? What happens? We all live in New York. We know what's going on. We are in a rat race, okay? We are literally saying, I need more shoes. I need more money. I need a better job. I need a promotion. I need this. I need that. I need a nice house with white picket fence. I also need a house in Southampton. And I also need to go skiing in Colorado. And I also, I also, also, I'm so built, busy building my existence. My existence, my existence can be better. I'm going to have a nice car. I'm going to have a this. And all of a sudden, what happens? You reach a point where... You've made your existence so lovely, you can't go anymore. And then you look back at yourself and you say, one second, I have not lived my life. I was so busy existing, I haven't lived. So what do you do? Get out of your house, go get a new car, go skydiving, go do all these fun things, because all of a sudden you realize your soul's like, hey, what about me? You haven't lived, you were so busy building this existence, you haven't lived. And that's what happens at a certain point, it doesn't get any better. You end up starting to look at other people, and then you say, oh, I don't have this, I don't have this. But you've built your existence. You, you did not live. Question number two was, what is the miracle of the survival of the Jewish people? Why is that one of the most amazing miracles ever to have happened to the Jewish people? Because like this, if you go back into the history of the Jewish people, when Moshe gives the Jewish people the Torah, he actually starts telling them the future of what is going to be. Okay, we get the Torah, we get such and 13 commandments, we're going to do all this, we're going to do this. And he starts to tell us a little bit about what is going to be with the Jewish people, okay? As he's leaving us, he's parting ways, Yoshua, excuse me, Joshua's the one who's going to be taking us into the lands of Israel. So he's giving us a little brief history, a little foreshadowing of what's going to be. And he starts to tell us, you're going to go into the land of Israel, and you're going to have to fight. There's going to be seven nations there, and you have to try to destroy them. Then you're going to build the temple, and it's going to be amazing. But then the Babylonians are going to come there, they're going to destroy you. And then you're going to go into Babylon, and then that's going to become Persia. And then the Persians are going to come, and the Persians are going to destroy you. And then you're going to go, and then they're going to try to kill you. But then you're going to build the second temple. And then the Greeks are going to come, and then the Romans are going to come, and then, then the Spain is going to come, and then England's going to come. And then we're all like, okay, Moshe, we get it. Like, they're going to try to kill us, and we're going to try to rise again, and they're going to try to kill us. So what's the point? What are you trying to tell us? So what does Moshe say? Moshe says, 
You have to understand this. Your existence will be minimal, will be so small. Your state of Israel is going to be smaller than Rhode Island. I mean, I think it is. It's the tiniest country out there. Your existence is going to be minimal, so start living. Start learning the Torah. Start feeding your soul. You're not going to have the grand existence. Your country is going to be teeny. Enemies are going to come try to destroy you. So start living. And if you look through Jewish history, the times that we've actually written the Talmud, when we've learned the most Torah, when we've contributed to the Jewish people, is actually when we were being crushed. We wrote the Talmud. The Talmud is called Talmud Babli, that was written in Babylon. Okay, It was written when we were under pressure, when our existence was being crushed. That's when we live. That is the Jewish people. Where at any time we are living grand lives, don't worry, the news and everybody else out there, all the other countries are going to remind us, oh, the Jews have so much money, right? And they're going to, you know, even like um, Shakespeare, during Shakespeare time, if you ever read the stories of Shakespeare, I remember growing up, they filled with anti-Semitism because they hated us for who we were. So our existence, our existence, our existence being crushed, 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 crushed. So what do you have to do? You just have to live. Just let your soul come out. You're not going to, any time you're going to live grand lives, they will remind you, we're going to come get you, okay? So if you look, I mean, I don't want me to scare anybody, but if you look through Jewish history, that's what's been. Every time we've risen, they've come to get us. So that's what Moshe is telling us. Your existence will be minimal, so live. Let's go to the third question, depression. What do we do? What would you, I'll give you all here for free. I'll tell you, you don't have to go to your therapist, sit on her couch and pay her $275 an hour. I will tell you now, a way for you to get out of depression is actually, uh, what Jackie was talking about before was, um, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Um, yeah, Jenny. Jenny was saying she works with Dero, where they give food packages, right? What's the best thing to do to get you out? Obviously, there's all often there's great medication out there, and my dad's a doctor, so I'll support the pharmaceutical companies. But the idea is when you give from yourself to somebody else, that helps you bring that helps bring you out of depression. It's such a crazy concept. Jewish the Torah talks about tzedakah. Tzedakah is it says tzedakah talks on the mother. Tzedakah saves you from from death. What does that mean? It saves us from death. Actually, death slash depression. The more you give from yourself to somebody else, the more you live. What does that make sense? I give away from my existence, from my money, from my matter. Right? If existence is matter, it's me. I give up from myself to you. You would think I have less. I have one iPhone less if I give you my iPhone. But no, 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 no. It makes me a happy person. Look at your moms. Jewish moms, they love this, right? You come to your house, oh, you want food? Oh, 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 right? Open up your fridge. Oh, grandma says, I'm sorry. Also, open up your freezer. Oh, take out this, take this pop, go home, take this, come home, right? The more, and sometimes, by the way, it's a bigger mitzvah to take it because it makes them feel better. The more I give from myself to you, maybe that minimizes my existence, but it gives me life. It makes me so much better. So what does the Torah say? How do you get out of depression? How do you pull yourself out from a slump? You give away from your existence, and that will give you life, and that will make you feel better. Yes, it is all in your head. It is all in your head, because the more you give away from yourself, yes, maybe my bank account's going to be less now, but that ends up giving me life. And let's just go to the last question. When, before you stand up, uh, somebody always, you know, gives a speech, they ask for a little, you know, drink before, right, and they get up, and they say, l'chaim, right, to life, right? And it's great, because like the rest of the world knows this. Everybody even says l'chaim. Well, non-Jews, everybody says l'chaim, l'chaim, mazda. What does it mean when I say l'chaim to life, when, before somebody takes a drink? What, I'm scared I'm going to die, this is going to be so poisonous, this, whatever, this Patron is going to kill me, right? No, it's not. Why do I say l'chaim to life? So here's the idea. 
when you are in a room, when you're sober and you're in a room with drunk people, what ends up happening? Those people who are intoxicated are a little bit looser. They don't know the four foot rule of social space, right? They burst your social bubble. My kids talk about this all the time. They come, you're in my social bubble. You're in my space bubble. And I'm like, space bubble? What are you talking about? Because there's this concept where kids don't necessarily know. They sit on top of other people. And then they grow up into adults who sit on top of other people. And it's uncomfortable, right? When we went couch shopping um, for my house, my husband and I, we were in the store. And the guy's like, oh, this is a great couch. This would fit four sober people and nine drunk people, right? <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, Ray Warren Flanagan. This guy is great. This is, he actually, like, it was the perfect line for us to hear because that's what happens. When you're drunk, what ends up happening? You become a little bit looser and your life force comes out. You forget about your existence. You forget about your body. You fall down a flight of steps and you don't need to call 911. Maybe the next day when you wake up with a hangover, maybe you should. But at that point, you're all about your life force. And unfortunately, when somebody who's a very angry person, a depressed person, they get drunk, that's not good because they become very sad. Who are the best people? Happy drunks, right? Because then you realize what's behind all that existence, that pressure, work, get up, go to school, go to, go to your job, come home, go to the gym, this, all that existence, existence, they have a wonderful life force underneath. So the happy drunks are the best people. That's the guy you want to find. Um, so the idea is, and this is where I'm going to leave you, is that we have both. We have this body and we have this soul. And we need to figure out how we can let those two live. But what I want to leave you before Jackie starts is that the more you pull down your existence, the more you actually live. And sometimes the existence is so much pressure. Work and get up and go to school and come home and this and that. And then you have to come to learn because you also have to feed yourself, right? All this pressure, pressure, pressure. The more you let go of that pressure, the more your life force will come out. To me, that as a balloon where you let it go, that is your life force. So with this, I leave you. Jackie will give you some practical ways, but if you have any questions, just come over after. Thank you. It's interesting, you reminded me of, um, I think I shared this with the Shabbat meal. Who was the Shabbat meal Talia's on the Upper West Side? Oh yeah, Couple. so fun, Everyone, yeah, it was packed, like 80, 90 people, it was awesome. Anyway, um, a rabbi in Israel once said to me, why is it that horror movies are the same formula over and over again, and we keep watching them, right? Over and over again, the same formula, the same formula, and we like getting scared, and we like getting spooked, right? And it's the same with many different movies, you know, romance, action, same, the same exact formula. Why? Because it resonates on a deep level in our psyche. And... One of the key themes of a horror movie that we are addicted to, meaning as a society, I personally can't handle them, but like as a society where millions and billions of dollars go into these types of movies are the uh, zombie movies. <laughs> right? Like the zombies, like the, you know? And we, we watch them over and over again to spook ourselves out. And so Rabbi Green, this rabbi, Rabbi Green, had this idea. He said, why is it that that spooks us out to the core? Why is it those types of movies that that specific concept that spooks us out? Because deep down inside all of us, we are terrified of being just like them, the walking dead. That we could live our whole life physically in, in existence, that's what reminds me of it, but no life force. Like we're alive and we're physically here, but we're like the walking dead. We're just worried about like menial things that don't mean anything. We have no life, we have no existence that's meaningful. But we could, you could literally, in our life, and our generation, spend your whole day from morning till night completely consumed with distractions, right? It's so easy. 
Sometimes I get up and I know what I want to do that day, and I literally, lunchtime's there, and I haven't done a thing of what I wanted to do, especially here, right, in this workspace, we're chatting away and eating and talking about food. Like, there's, like, so much stuff to, stuff to, stuff to do that, like, lunchtime can come, and I'm respond, I've responded to, like, 50 Facebook messages and 30 WhatsApps, and, right, you can be in response to all sorts of things, and they're not, not meaningful, but it's not what I actually wanted to do for my own meaning that day, so... It's very important going forward of like being able to have, I think, choice around it, being able to know how to set up your life and your day and have a self-awareness about what you're trying to pay attention to so that your life can be more life-driven rather than existence-driven. Does that make sense? Meaning it's very nice that you take this class and go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And then you walk out the door and everything's the same, right? So the question is, once you've thought, oh, okay, yes, that is the kind of life I want, I want more life force in my life, not as much time spent on existence, even though it's, it's crucial to be existing at a level where now you can do something meaningful and, and life-driven. How do I, what do I do internally? What do I pay attention to? What, what do I need to give more weight to? How do I make conscious choices that allow me that, that fulfillment and that quality of life? So um, the body and soul are two different creations. They are two completely separate creations that were created. Yeah, actually it was created in Genesis. I have a source sheet that's not really the type of kinds of sources, so I'm just going to read it to you. Um, in Genesis 2, 7, it says, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, right? So we've got the dust, we've got the breath, they're the two areas, body, soul, right? The body's from the ground, the breath was from God breathing. In, and it says in Hebrew, Vayetzer Hashem, Hashem formed the Vayetzer, if you look in any Torah, any Chumash, in the word Vayetzer Hashem, Hashem formed man, it's, it's written with two yuds, Vayetzer, but the way it's said and the way it should be is with one yud, right? Vayetzer in the actual Torah, if you look in the word, it's not even spelt right. You think like a misprint, right? Two yuds. So what is that? So all the commentaries jump on it because there's nothing that's even slightly redundant in the Torah. There's no letter, there's no word, there's nothing that's extra. So there's hinting to something much deeper, and the hint is that the word Vayetzer is formed being spelt with two letters. The whole Hashem created two impulses inside of us, one good and the other towards, they say evil, but I would say a type of disconnection, where you're disconnected from the purpose of things, right? So there's two impulses inside of us, one that wants to build, create, create, and one that wants to destroy and, and be focused on whatever, short-term instant gratification, desires, right? So that's in our absolute makeup that we have two different creations that are interwoven into one being and they separate death. Yes, body, soul. They have two different feelings, profiles, wants, likes, right? And it's our job to be able to decipher the difference between the two. So what does it sound like? The body, the body's much more into I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I want instant gratification, I'm bored, I need entertainment, adventure, like all oh, that that Ben and Jerry's, right? Like whatever it is, it, it's into instant gratification. That's very much a body desire. The soul desire <coughs> is, is much more potent but much softer, right? It's much more like, who am I? What do I want to be in the world? What do I want to do with my life? Who do, what, what, who do I want to impact? Do I, I want to be meaningful. I want to count, right? My, my theory, by the way, is, you know, the action, movie, the action movies and the action stories. Like, I was addicted to 24 when it was out. Keith Sutherland, right? Addicted. Have you ever seen it? You don't, because you can't stop it. You really can't. Like they, they literally have like designed it to the point where you're hanging off your edge because it's in real time. It's like they're 24. Anyway, whatever. But what, and, I, and then, and then the, what happens in every single action movie? Every single action movie, there's a hero. 
and the hero nearly dies for his mission every single time, and you're on the edge of your seat, but you know he's in the next episode, so it's fine. Like, you know that feeling, right? And you're like, I know he survives, but I saw it on the right? And then, but, but you're still on the edge of your seat, right? I had a tear rolling down my eye with Kiefer, and I was like, this is ridiculous. And then he comes out triumphant, and he saves the world, or saves the mission, or whatever, and you're just like, there's this deep, happy resolution inside of us, right? You're like, ah, right? There's just, and that, ah, right? The movies, the movie industry has capitalized on and then built all the movies around the same exact things, textbook themes. It's crazy. Textbook plot. And over and over we watch the same things. Why? Because we want nothing more than to be the hero in our own lives. Deep down. Whatever our mission here is, our soul's mission, not body mission, soul's mission is, we want more than anything to finish our life and go, oh, I did it. I'm a hero. Like, ah, oh, like, right. <laughs> we want more than anything to have the feeling of that deep resolution, a deep aha, uh -huh, that deep accomplishment. Yes? So, how do we do it? How on earth do I start living a little bit more consciously with that awareness? So, as we said before, the body's much more into here and now, the soul's much in, into bigger life visions, and they have to live together harmoniously for you to actually get anything done. If I listen only to my soul, Powerful, you know, powerhouse people who like literally get everything done and constantly work, 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 and don't sleep, right? There's no sleep, there's no eating, there's no socializing. People that work, workaholics, right? What happens? How does the body protest? Get sick. Get sick. What else? Like, gets just, like, the body basically is like, I'm not playing. What happens? First of January, everyone gets a soul burst. New Year's resolution! I want to change my life! Right? Diets go up, gym goes, gym memberships go up, everything spikes, and everyone's like, I want to change, no chocolate ever again, right? <laughs> right? First of February, what happens? Everything is back to normal, they sound statistically. Everything is back to normal, first of February, after first of January, everyone's new resolution. Isn't that crazy? Why? It's exactly this. Because the soul was like, I want to change, right? And the body's like, okay. <laughs> right? The body's going along, and then at some point after a month, like this, like, chocolate. Chocolate, chocolate. Like, no, chili again, right? The body's being ignored completely, and first of February, body goes not playing. <laughs> that's what happens. It, it, I'm, I'm dramatizing the inner reality, but that's essentially what's happening. The body's like, I'm not playing, and what does it do? It gives you intense desires for the opposite thing. You, you've had this before. For example, I'll give you an example you probably relate to when you have when you're studying, when you remember at school, or for a big job interview. If you had a big job interview coming up, but you're at school and you're studying really hard. And you're, you're powering through all-nighters. Remember those all-nighters? Cramming, up all night, whatever. So you're ignoring the body. Shh, shh, right? I wanna, I've got to do this because I want to get the degree because I want to be your life and I want to make a difference and I want to have this degree and it gets me into that school. And, right? Remember that? And at some point, if you push too hard, you know, your friends tell you they're going out that night to a really cool place. And you start going, oh, yeah, maybe I, should do, maybe I need a break. Maybe I'll just go out and have one drink. <laughs> and then I'll come back and study, right? And so you start having these other voices in your head. Yeah, I really need a break. I'm going to go out and have a drink, right? But you know that that's really not what's going to happen. But sometimes you'll listen to that voice too much because you're at the point where you're a breaking point, yes? Um, another thing that you can do sometimes to include the body, it's what well, the crucial, the bottom line is that you have to include the body's needs. You must include them, hence why we're about to do a workout, right? <laughs> you have to include the, include the body's needs. The body's needs are not wrong. They're not bad. They're only a problem if it runs the show, if it takes over your existence, right? 
It only becomes a problem where if I disconnect from my soul, I feel actually miserable, right? That, that's the midlife crisis. Yeah, actually, as a psychologist, I had, I had a practice, and um, I had people coming in diagnosing themselves with depression. And when I looked at them, they weren't actually clinically depressed, not clinically. They were having this midlife crisis because they had nothing meaningful in their life. I saw it with my own eyes over and over again, right? And it's not their fault. It's just like societal pressure to do that. So the way to do it is to include the body's needs. So for example, if you're sitting there studying, what I used to do, got on my Ugg boots, yeah, Australia. Uh, right? Got, uh, had my like, Starbucks coffee exactly how I like it. We didn't have Starbucks, so equivalent, right? And then we, I was sitting this, and so when I was all cozy in my sweats and my Ugg boots, and I was sitting down, I had like treats, and I had a treat there, I had a piece of chocolate for later, like if I did two hours, right? So then I, my body was freed up and I could focus. Try it. Whatever you have to focus on, doesn't matter. Whatever you have to prepare, try literally giving yourself, your body, some sort of treat in order to do it as a, as a, as a strategy to focus for example, right? So that's one way is to really listen to your body, really listen to what it needs. With that goes with sleep, food, um, fun, like time to chill out. A lot of women suffer from the guilt syndrome and the approval syndrome, right? That I feel guilty if I can't do what you want me to do, but I need your approval, so I'm going to do it anyway. And they, women often have nothing left to give, but they'll still give, even though they really what, what they need is to give to themselves at that moment, to recharge, to be able to then continue being a giver, right? So it's very, very crucial to focus on your own um, body's needs and be at least in touch with them, right? What do I really need? Now, that's not about necessarily listening to every desire, right? Because it's coming down to sleep, food, and, and enough recreation to be able to feel like you can refocus again. Um, if you focus too much on the soul, the body will protest, as we said. And if you focus too much on the body, then you get what we're speaking to the Kim Kardashian uh, syndromes. Um, we love her. <laughs> she represents something that, that is important to acknowledge. She probably doesn't even realize herself, you know. Um, and as not just her, it's all celebrities that indulge in that world because, you know, although you see the ones that do have a deeper connection to themselves will go and use their wealth to make a difference with charities and foundations and they'll, they'll, that's a connection of their existence in their life. Okay. Um, why is this so important? Because internally we have a homeostasis, an equilibrium that must be, must be sustained. And if I go too far into the body, my, sorry, too far into the soul, my body will rebel. And if I go too far into the body, my soul will disconnect and I will feel self-indulgent and disgusting. Right? I will feel gross. You know that feeling, slothville, mid, you, one o'clock in the afternoon, you've been in your pajamas all day, you slept in, you've eaten exactly what you wanted, you're watching movies, and at some point you feel gross and disgusting, like, get me out of here, I've got to have a shower, right? That's the feeling when you overindulge the body's needs and ignored anything more meaningful in an imbalanced way. So on a, on a, um, on a spooky level, the only way to do things in life, especially to change and grow, is to do anything in baby steps. Why? Because the body can't handle being changed. The soul is like, I believe, like I want to change now, everything, right? The, the soul's very much like, I want change now. That's the first of January moment, right? First of January moment. Everything I want, I want my whole. That's it. My whole year is different. You know when you go to, when you were in school, you bought the new pencil cases and the new pens, and everything was really neat. You're so excited, right? And then like a month later, everything's starting to look messy. Why? The soul wants that perfection. The soul wants the wholeness. The soul wants change. The soul wants growth. The soul's connected to that that truth. The body, on the other hand, is much more in this world, and we have to listen to it. We have to respect it enough to, to bring it along. So where does this, where does this struggle, where, where's a good example of this? 
Is everyone smoiling boiling now? No. I just put on both ears. They're not hot. No. Cold. Is that air? Is that cold air? gratification it relates to, that's going to come its way, yes? So then, unfortunately, I was in the situation myself one time, one time with a friend's kid, which is even worse because you're not the uh, disciplinarian. And uh, it was a toddler and I was babysitting and I was trying to get all the errands done as I was babysitting due to stay. And I was in my early 20s and I didn't really know how to deal with kids who were having major issues, like protests. And we were in the supermarket, this is a true story, I'm a bit embarrassed to say. And um, we were walking down the aisle, and this kid at some point snapped and said, that's it, like, oh, I need my mommy and daddy, and on the floor, going for it, full throttle, foaming at the mouth, tantrum, like, you name it, like, just flaps rashing around, and I'm, like, trying to negotiate, which doesn't work because I don't develop their cognitive capacity until later, and um, I'm, like, trying to say, well, mommy's coming in, like, 25 minutes, and, like, you know, a three-year-old couldn't care less, and, um, and I remember I got the looks from the other shoppers, like, you know, those looks, like, you your abusive mother and your kids. I'm like, no, 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 like, it's not my kid. They're like, yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm like, no, really? And I just felt so stuck and I didn't know what to do. And I, sat, I was sitting on the ground, we are on the aisle and I was trying to get the kid up and the kid was flailing and like frothing and everything. And uh, out of complete, complete desperation, not out of any strategy, I literally thought, if you can't beat them, join them. And I got on the floor and had a tantrum with the kid. Right? Like I thought, I'm just going to cop, I'm going to be with him doing it. So I get on the floor and start going like this, like, you know, and I looked up, we were on the side, thank God, so not everyone really saw me, and I looked up out of one eye, and this kid has stopped everything he's doing, and he's looking at me like this, like, what are you doing? You're meant to be the adult, right, that little look on the face. I was like, oh my gosh, this is working, and I went back in and did more of it, and then I looked up, and the kid's just like, just dumbfounded, like, he totally gets it, this is not, this is not normal, and I said, you want to go? And the kid goes, <laughs> and we literally walked off hand in hand. I highly recommend it. Please try it at home anytime. Why did this work? On some deeper level, it was a reflection of this idea. Meaning the kid was done. He was done. He was protesting. I was ignoring him and dragging him along. Yes? Which we do to ourselves. And at some point, he got, he got the power of the whole situation by having a massive tantrum. And I had nothing to do but just stand there helpless watching him, which is often what our soul has to do. 
so the soul can't change anything actively in our lives. It has to watch as we like shove Ben and Jerry's and get sugar and get drunk and you know, like whatever we're doing, right? And then like go shopping and then go shopping and then go shopping and then go more shopping, right? And the soul's like, but I want meaning, I want meaning, right? And we're just like dragging, right? And at some point I got down on the floor and I had a tantrum with the kid, meaning if you want to protest, I'll protest. Let's protest together. And because on some level I think I just was with him and I acknowledged him. He didn't feel, he didn't feel uh, made fun of. I acknowledged him. We literally reconnected and walked off hand in hand, right? Like, I was like, okay, we're, we're going to protest, let's protest, yeah? And I think that that's what, what, what on some level it needs to be within ourselves. It needs to be a, a, homeostasis, a homeostasis, an equilibrium that's sustained and maintained here. Um, and the spooky level, I'll just finish on the spooky level, why this works. We know that baby steps and short-term goals and all those things are very important. We've heard them all before in different disciplines and different ideas. But here's the spiritual reason why it's crucial. So, I'll tell, there was a story with Rob Volva. Rob Volva was a big rabbi who was very famous for personal growth and change. And he was flying into, um, he was being flown in, I should say, to Lebanon after the Lebanese War in 1967. Because, um, or in 1960, I think. 1967, maybe? I think 1967. Um, why? Because Israeli soldiers in Lebanon had seen so many examples of miracles in the war that they were freaked out. And so they didn't know what to do. They were all stationed still in Lebanon. The war had finished. And they flew in Ravolva to address the Israeli soldiers on some sort of spiritual matters because they were so freaked out. So Ravolva's flying in on a little dinky Israeli plane. And they're flying him in. And as, it's just him and the pilot. And as they're flying in on an Israeli plane, all of a sudden as they cross the border into Lebanon, the, the plane does a 180-degree nosedive. And all of a sudden, Ravolva realizes they're crashing. And he goes up to the pilot and says, Call the Seder, is everything okay? And the, the pilot says, Yeah, everything's fine. And all of a sudden, the plane evens out and flies low to the ground. So they literally flew in, did a total nosedive, and then flying low to the ground. And Rob Volva's like, What's going on? And he says, we, Well, we just post war, and uh, we came in over the Lebanese border, and I didn't want the Lebanese to pick up on their radar that we entered the country in an Israeli plane because it's still a bit tense. So I just, dove, I just dove down under the radar. So they, they don't know we entered the country, like only in Israel, you know. And, uh, and, and, and then Revolver realized it was this concept, it's only Revolver would connect. Uh, he said, you realize that if I take on baby steps, and I, I, like, I maybe I'm inspired and I want to grow, and i like, oh, I want to be kinder to someone, I'm just going to start with one thing towards my mum, and then like, oh, I, 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 yeah, I want to start, stop speaking gossip, I'm not going to listen to as much gossip, so once a day I'm going to make sure that I write. And, oh yeah, I love, love lighting Shabbat candles. I'm just going to do Shabbat candles, right? Find out if you just take on baby steps, it goes underneath the radar of our own Yetzirah, of our own evil inclination, right? And our own Yetzirah, which is set up to sabotage us and distract us from doing the right thing, doesn't even pick up that we're changing. And all of a sudden, you take on one baby thing, one baby thing, one baby thing, and you end up in a different position. And the other part of you goes, wait, how did you get there? So it maintains a beautiful equilibrium and you can gracefully drift through your life. It should never feel like something's being yanked away from you. Growth and change should never feel like all of a sudden I have to change my life. It should never be. People who are learning about Judaism who, who are inspired about it, oh, I have this conversation nearly every time with someone. It should never feel like you have to radically give up your life. That's not, yeah, if you value something, you'll bring it into your life in, in some way that you value it, right? You don't throw yourself out and become this new thing. That doesn't work, right? So, so... The way that we, we do that is because it also, on a spiritual level, 
it doesn't create an inner resistance. Yes? And the inner resistance is usually from the body. Because the body likes everything to be the way it likes. Right? So if I radically change everything according to the soul, the body is the one that will push back. So if I take on things gently, it says that we're like a big ship. If we turn too quickly, we crack. So all growth, if you want to keep the harmony and the equilibrium internally, has to go at the rate of the body. And if you go at the rate of the body, the body's like, okay, I can handle it, okay, I can handle it, okay, okay, right? So 1st of January, you can pick big goals, but then chunk it down by 1st of February, I'm only doing these two things. Make sense? Right? So it really, really can be very practical. The other, uh, the other tip I just want to leave you with before we finish and we work out is the idea that the, the body and the soul voice usually, usually, not always, <coughs> usually when it's a body voice, it's I. Oh, I really want that dress. Right? Oh, I really want that ice cream. Oh, I really, I, I. It identifies as I. And the little, still, small voice of the soul, which is more intuitive and is higher, is much softer, and it usually speaks in the word, you. You really don't need another spirit. Right? You really should, you probably shouldn't do that. Right? Not always, but it's that type of phrase, phraseology. Right? It's not really the best thing to do. Or it's more like advice giving, rather than, I want it. Yes? So that's, that's one way to determine um, the difference. And with that, I think we will work out. Treat the body. We got, now we just got body the rest of the day. Like we got workout and food. But you got, you got through the soul part. So, um, so any questions? This is, it's a big topic, meaning like as you go along and if you start being conscious about it, the application can be quite complex. So please feel free to email, call, come to the center, um, whatever, but, but try to just be conscious of it. Try, try and notice where drives are coming from in you. Just even that, I want to notice what, where things are coming from through my day. But any questions for Fagi, myself, around this concept? No? Soul, yes? Actually, um, you were talking about midlife crisis. We were saying it's the result of people that are focusing more on the resistance and not about the life? Is that what? Sometimes. Depends on the midlife crisis, but yeah. So, why do they solve it by working more on existence? I feel like existence is more like, if it's physical matter and they're trying to solve it by buying a new car, is So, like, the existence? idea is that they felt like they haven't lived their life to what they wanted to. They were so busy wearing that, you know, like, cookie cutter, like, let's say, typical person, that they haven't actually, like, enjoyed it. Stressed out, so they all take on adventures.